Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. When will he call a public inquiry right here, right now? The only player that has to come around with the same ideas is the government. A public inquiry on foreign interference. Will there be one and who would lead it? The questions continue, but the Bloc Québécois has names in mind. Deputy House Leader Christine Normand joins us. Another year, another critical report from Canada's Information Commissioner. Carolyn Maynard tells us why federal access to information is at a breaking point. And Donald Trump arraigned on federal charges. We have reaction to the scene in Miami and analysis on what comes next with presidential historian Tevi Troy. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio. We start with new developments on foreign interference. The RCMP is investigating allegations of the Chinese government targeting Conservative MP Michael Chong. Top RCMP officials also say they're looking into claims involving MPs Aaron O'Toole and Jenny Kwan. The Procedure Committee also hearing today from the Prime Minister's former National Security and Intelligence Advisor, David Morrison explaining his reaction to a memo on possible Chinese threats to MPs. Morrison says that CSIS assessment was meant to inform and not as a spur to action. The July 2020 CSIS report was very much a deep dive. It was not intended to spur action by me as acting NSA, NSIA, or by anyone else. It was certainly not something that I would have rushed to brief up the Prime Minister on. Importantly, as reported by The Globe and repeated by Jody Thomas, the report did not name Michael Chong or any other MP. Indeed, it would have been highly irregular for this kind of piece to go into that kind of detail. The pathway of this information who would ask for the names of MPs? Because it seems to me there's something there and nobody knew what it was for an extended amount of time. So I'm just wondering who would ask? The second, uh, merci Madame la Présidente for the question. The second thing that I tried to say, in addition to it was not a report that was intended to spur action, is that uh, when someone like me reads that report, we have awareness that it is based on underlying intel. There are other reports that uh, have been sifted and analyzed that build up to this assessment. I actually have a fairly high degree of confidence in our security agencies that if there is something that needs, if there's an action that needs to be taken, because of a, uh, a development, something that shows up in Intel, they will take that action. Jody Thomas was very clear that um, in the Intel when it first sur- uh, surfaced with respect to the MPs in February and March of 2021, there was no physical threat. There was some alarming information uh, you can, you can, um, it, it, you know, it, it's up to uh, others in the system to determine what 
how, how loud that alarm is ringing and what actions are required to be taken. Um, but in answer to your question, um, uh, Madam Chair, when someone like me reads it, you can be, we can be quite certain that um, others already know the information and have taken action on it, or it wouldn't be buried in an assessment report. Now, the Conservative and Bloc Québécois leaders met today about a possible public inquiry on foreign interference. The government says it wants opposition feedback on the potential scope and timeline and who would lead it now that David Johnston is stepping down as special rapporteur. Here's the Prime Minister asked if an inquiry will now happen. I think it's good that we are seeing uh, contributions, uh, con constructive contributions uh, from various parties right now. Foreign interference is an issue that needs to be taken seriously uh, if we can move past the toxicity and the partisanship that has characterized the approach by uh, many parties uh, and actually take this seriously, work together and figure out a way uh, to highlight everything that is being done and what next steps can be taken. Uh, it'll be a good thing. Well, the Bloc Québécois says whoever leads a potential public inquiry should be the one defining its scope, and the party has some names in mind for the government, including a former Supreme Court justice and a former Liberal cabinet minister. Let's welcome Christine Normandin. She is the Bloc Deputy House Leader. Ms. Normandin, good to have you here. Good afternoon, Andrew. Now, we'll talk about uh, the demands and the names that your party is putting forward. But first, can you give us an update on what's happening in terms of the talks between the opposition parties and with the government? Uh, well, there's, there's not been uh, official talks, as far as I know. Uh, we got, uh, a, let's say, a courtesy call from the Conservatives uh, looking for an eventual discussion. But so far, there's no official discussions that have happened. I do hope that is going to take place in the, in the near future. There's only 11 days left to the current session. And one of the, the things we're asking in our letter is that we find someone by the end of the semester, since we're, we're hoping that it can uh, result in a vote from the House and that the person that will be recommended for uh, to be the commissioner or judge or president of an eventual inquiry will be um, recommended by all leaders in the House and then voted for uh, by the Parliament. Right, and you're mentioning a leader, uh, sorry, a letter that your leader, uh, Yves-Francois Blanchet, has sent uh, to Minister Dominic LeBlanc, and that letter does include some names that could head up an inquiry, including uh, former Justice uh, Louise Arbour, former Justice Minister Erwin uh, Kotler. Uh, as well, you have uh, former Ambassador Guy Saint-Jacques and Louise Otis, a former Quebec appeal judge. So why are these the names you're putting forward? Well, it's a list of suggestions uh, of people who have a good background that could be uh, suited uh, to lead uh, an eventual inquiry, and we insist on the fact that it, it is a, um, a public inquiry um, and not public hearings. Uh, we didn't want to set criteria. We were more looking at the backgrounds uh, of people who are already, uh, for example, have an experience, Louise Arbeau being one with 
terms of experience uh, leading inquiries or um, or, or uh, doing uh, work on different uh, very pol politicized topics. Uh, so we were more looking at people with backgrounds, people that we feel have a liberty of speech uh, and have uh, knowledge also of China, Guy Saint-Jacques being one of them. So instead of insisting on specific criteria, we were looking more generally at resumes, uh, people with interesting resumes, and that's a list of suggestions. Basically. Okay, so let me ask you then specifically about Erwin Kotler, because as you know, he's a former Liberal minister, he's a former caucus colleague of the Prime Minister. Why did you include him? Uh, most, mostly because of his background with regards to human rights. Uh, he's done terrific work uh, in the past, uh, including on uh, Rive Badawi's case. And we felt that he was uh, someone who would have a liberty of speech uh, with regards to what's happening in China. And one of the, uh, the topics we want to be covered uh, with an eventual inquiry would be um, threats to uh, MPs and to uh, local diaspora, the, the community. And we felt that with it, his experience, he could be one of the people going more in depth uh, and not be naive towards China. And that, uh, we think that that was something important to be included. All right. Now, the government uh, also wants you and the other opposition parties to suggest some terms of reference and how a, an inquiry might handle sensitive national security information on foreign interference and in that open letter from uh, Mr. Blanchet to Dominic LeBlanc he says that should be left to the commissioner themselves down the road. Why is that? Uh, well, from the beginning, we, what we asked for was someone to be named after a, a consensus from leaders and from the House. So as soon as we have someone who's, who's got that kind of confidence from the House, we feel that it would be normal to give them the most latitude possible with uh, regards to uh, the scope of the inquiry. And since that person would have confidence of the House, it, we felt it was normal that it would be that person to determine what would have to go in camera, what would not have to go in camera, instead of uh, having maybe partisan discussions uh, prior to the inquiry on the scope or what should be or should not be in public. If we have confidence in someone, uh, if we have enough confidence in someone to be a president, judge or commissioner on a public inquiry, we should, uh, we, by extension, we should have enough confidence in them uh, in order for them to, to set the scope of the inquiry. It, it goes together in a way. Okay, let's talk about time. I mean, you did talk about uh, time pressure that we're nearing uh, the end of the spring sitting. You, the Bloc, the Conservatives and the NDP all talk about wanting a fast timeline for a potential inquiry uh, ahead of the next election campaign. Now, in his report, the special rapporteur, about to be the former special rapporteur, David Johnston, wrote that public inquiries can last years. He says uh, that there's still going to be issues with classified information. So. How do you deal with those concerns and still try and get an inquiry done in the time frame you're looking for? The only timeline that we mentioned was the one that was meant to start the inquiry, the, 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 the idea of naming someone and have it voted in the House. Otherwise, we didn't set a timeline for the end of the inquiry. We mentioned that the scope of the inquiry should be something decided by an eventual commissioner. That goes uh, also for the, the time needed. if. 
uh, after digging and scratching, uh, the, the commissioner, commissioner feels that he needs more time. Well, so be it. We do hope that the eventual inquiry would, will have been uh, dealt with before the next election. But uh, it, it's a hope. It's not a time constraint that we want to impose on an eventual commissioner. But if we want to get there, the first thing to do would be to start as soon as we can. And that's why we're hoping for a quick start and a quick naming of a commissioner. Okay, we'll have to leave it there for now. Christine Normandin, thanks for your time. A pleasure. Canada's Chief Justice says more transparency is needed in the process overseeing the conduct of judges. Richard Wagner is speaking one day after Russell Brown's retirement from the Supreme Court. Brown's departure means an end to a review of misconduct allegations by the Canadian Judicial Council, allegations that Brown has denied. Here's more from the Chief Justice. I received a complaint at the same time as uh, Justice Brown. Looked at it, called him immediately to have a discussion about what's, what's, what's in it. And we both, we both uh, agreed that um, it was in the circumstances the best course to adopt would be for, for him to stay on the side and leave the court pending the resolution of this complaint. And then the, qu the question is, uh, should I disclose the fact that there's a complaint against Justice Brown? According to the existing re uh, regulations, uh, it's the CGC which decides when to disclose whether there is a complaint against a judge. So I was a bit taken, uh, and uh, that's why I, I said to, uh, to my, my colleagues and I said to uh, uh, the Judicial Conduct uh, Committee, look at it, because I should not be in a position like any other chief justice in other courts to be uh, necessarily submitted to a regulation that does not allow me to make it public. The Federal Access to Information Act is about to turn 40 years old, and Canada's Information Commissioner says chronic issues continue to plague the system, that the government has no solutions in sight, and that her office still needs more funding to clear a massive backlog of complaints. And with me now is the Federal Information Commissioner, Caroline Maynard. Ms. Maynard, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. You've been commissioner now for five years, and in your new annual report today, you're saying the access to information system has steadily declined to the point where it no longer serves its intended purpose. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, as uh, the Global Mail mentioned yesterday uh, or last week in their um, uh, reports on access, uh, access to information is the oxygen to democracy. And right now, our system is so broken that our democracy is uh, not breathing very well. Uh, Canadians should care about this because the uh, access system are broken, uh, not just at the federal level, at any jurisdiction in, in across Canada. Uh, we are uh, seeing more delays uh, and a lot more uh, information that's being redacted. Uh, so clearly the information that belongs to Canadians are not being shared with them uh, in a timely fashion. Right, and, and the federal government, uh, as you're well aware of, did release a review of access to information last December, and you had called it disappointing uh, because there were no concrete proposals for improvement. So take us through what you think needs to happen. 
Well, there's a lot of things that needs to be done uh, in terms of uh, changing the system, but I think the, the, the main thing is we need to change the culture of secrecy that exists. Uh, and this means that we need leaders who will make access a priority. Uh, we need to provide more training, we need to have more tools, we need more re uh, human resources. Uh, um, we need also to change the legislative uh, framework uh, without a good uh, system, a, a good statute, we don't have uh, a good f a framework for the access to information uh, system and to defend the, the, the rights of Canadians to have access to this information. Uh, we need investing uh, investments in our uh, um, uh, tools, like I said, and, and uh, in all of the system within the institutions that are uh, not responding to the current system, this, the current demand of ISIS requests. Okay, so you're certainly not alone in, in calling for change, and that's especially uh, been the case recently. Uh, you mentioned the Globe and Mail, the Globe with a recent high-profile project highlighting problems with access to information across Canada. Now, today the Prime Minister is defending the government's record, uh, saying he recognizes there's always more to do on transparency. Do you have any indication that the government is willing to do more? Well, as you mentioned, there was a report that was tabled in December. The report uh, has uh, highlighted the, the challenges that we're facing, all the issues that we are facing at uh, the government uh, level in terms of responding to access requests. And it didn't provide any recommendations or any uh, action plan with respect to how to, res to change these uh, these, these problems and how to uh, to respond to the issues. Um, so I, I'm waiting, and I've been waiting for five years now. I've, I've, there's been a lot of promises, a lot of uh, uh, words being said, and and uh, good encouragement, but it, not so much in terms of actions being taken. So why do you think that is is the case then? As I said, we I don't think the government is giving it uh, the. Uh, the importance that it needs to be given. It's not a priority for our government. We don't see it in mandate letters for our ministers anymore. We don't see it uh, in terms of funding being provided, not to my office, but to uh, other departments who are struggling to respond to the number of access requests that they have. Uh, we're not seeing it in the willingness to even change the the act. The, the, the allegedly review that was done was supposed to come up with some changes that are needed for a statute that is now 40 years old and there is no uh, mention about what needs to be amended in that act. So um, I'm guessing uh, we'll have to wait for another, another review. Now I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about this report, your annual report and the new information uh, from over the past year. You say there's a never ending increase in the number of complaints your office receives about the government. Give us a sense of, of what the latest numbers are and, and the scope that your office is dealing with. So just to give you an idea, when we start, when I started as an information commissioner five years ago, we were receiving approximately 3,000 uh, complaints a year. And then in this year, we've received over uh, 7,000 complaints. Um, so it's it's, it shows that the system is not working, that the timelines are yeah, becoming uh, an issue. Uh, institutions are not respecting the, uh, the 
30-day uh, timelines that they, they are supposed to be respecting under the Act. They're asking for more extensions, um, or they're just simply not responding. Our, uh, a lot of complainants are saying that they haven't heard from, from institutions in months. So it's definitely uh, a sign that there's, a, there's, there's an issue in, with the government uh, system. Okay, and I do want to close with this on you because you talk about uh, those numbers and you're once again looking for additional federal funding to help deal with uh, the number of, of complaints. You've also been continuing to push for change to your funding that as an officer of parliament, you shouldn't be de uh, dependent on government spending. Do you see any movement on, on either of those issues in the near future? I I haven't heard anything uh, in that sense. Uh, I will continue to promote uh, an independent mechanism for an agency parliament. Uh, I understand the ethic committee is uh, going to be issuing a report uh, on access system on the access system, and I'm I'm hoping and I understand that they have um, uh, a number of recommendations, possibly uh, one with respect to my uh, the independent funding for the, my office, but. Ultimately, as agents of parliaments, we should not be relying on the government that we are, uh, that our role is to monitor and to audit uh, to obtain the required funding to do our job properly. And uh, with the increased number of complaints, clearly my, uh, my finance, like the, the budget that we have is not sufficient. All right, Information Commissioner Caroline Maynard, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has pled not guilty to 37 felony counts related to his alleged mishandling of classified documents. Trump making a brief court appearance today in Miami after officially surrendering. He was later released. Outside the courthouse, there were supporters and protesters on hand to mark the first time a former U.S. president faces federal charges. Let's bring in Tevi Troy, a presidential historian and a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center. He also served in the George W. Bush administration. Uh, nice to have you on Primetime Politics. Hey, thanks for having me. So today, legally speaking, was a small first step in what could be a long process. But as you take in the whole scene today, uh, inside the courtroom and outside that courthouse in Miami, what stands out? Well, it's just a bit of a mess. Obviously, uh, it's not good to have a former president indicted. You've got protesters on both sides. You've got TV cameras. There's a small courtroom. There wasn't a lot of room to accommodate all the people who wanted to be in there. Obviously, the international media, the Canadian media is watching as well. Uh, I just think it's a sad day for our republic, and I, I wish we were not at this point. I hate the idea of criminalizing political differences. I also hate the way that the former president has behaved in terms of the way he deals with classified information. Um, Nicole Wallace said on her show that the president's now been indicted more times than he was elected. Uh, it's a kind of pithy line. So it's a, you know, I, I, I have this conversation with you with no joy in my heart today. Right, and Mr. Trump already faces criminal charges in New York for allegedly trying to cover up hush money payments but here, you're talking about the scene today, he's facing federal charges as a former president accused of harming U.S. national security, which is uh, a U.S. president's ultimate responsibility. Give us some context on what today means as a moment in American history. 
Yeah, well, these charges, I think, are much more serious than the charges in New York. I think that uh, if this goes to trial, he's likely to get convicted. I'm not a lawyer, I'm a historian, but uh, Bill Barr, who was attorney general under Trump and has defended Trump in many circumstances, but is also willing to call him out when he's wrong, has said that this is a very strong indictment. You can't mess with classified material. I worked in the White House, as you said earlier. You don't bring those papers out with you. Doesn't matter if you're a former president, you don't have extra leeway to keep presidential papers. You certainly don't have extra leeway to keep national security secrets. And according to the indictment, Trump, again, allegedly knew that he didn't have the ability to declassify materials, that some of these things were top secret, and he was kind of showing them off. And then also, he supposedly was told by the Department of Justice which papers he had to return, and he chose to hide some of those papers. So what you have there is in, in contrast to, let's say, uh, Joe Biden, who was also found with classified materials, or Mike Pence was also found with classified materials. I don't know what's with this... Um, uh, this epidemic of people having classified materials at home. But those people, when they were told to return the materials, they returned the materials, and, and Trump did not act that way. So um, as usual, Trump is being his own worst enemy. Uh, we hear that he's having trouble getting a lawyer, um, A, because he doesn't usually, usually pay his lawyers their fees, and B, because it's a, it's a difficult case, and he keeps talking, which always makes the job harder for a lawyer. So it, it's just a very challenging situation for the former president, but he seems undeterred. He blames it all on witch hunts and everybody's out to get him. But at some point you have to take responsibility for your own actions. Okay, let's talk about the politics uh, of this. The polls do continue to say Donald Trump is the front runner for the GOP nomination. Top Republicans were coming to his defense when news of this indictment broke last week. We've heard candidates running against Donald Trump say they're willing to give him a pardon if they were to win. Uh, now that the details of this indictment have been out, now that uh, Mr. Trump has been indicted, has gone to court, has been arraigned, is there any change in what Republicans are saying right now. Yeah, I kind of love those promises to give him a pardon because it presupposes that those people are going to beat him in the primaries and that Trump won't be the next president. So it's, it's kind of an easy promise to make. Well, you know, if I destroy you in the primaries, then I'll, then I'll happily give you a pardon down the road. It's uh, kind of like wimpy. I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. So, uh, you know, I, I wonder about those, um, th those promises. Uh, look, I think when someone is indicted in a normal circumstance, that makes it harder for them to get elected, to get the votes of the American people that they need in order to get the position that they are seeking. In, tr in Trump's case, it seems that sometimes when he gets these attacks against him, whether it's an impeachment or an indictment, it seems to galvanize as many supporters. You talk about people who go on the air. I mean, they're the talking heads of the world the non-elected officials, the, uh, the think tankers, the journalists, all those people, even on the Republican side, they don't seem to be defending him on this one. But those voters, uh, that strong block of Republican primary voters that he seems to have a tight hold on, they seem to think that he's being treated ill as he has been in the past. There have been circumstances where, let's say, that Alvin Bright Bragg indictment in New York was um, something that uh, seems like not a righteous indictment. And so those people get mad on his behalf, and at this point, they are continuing to support him. However, I don't think anybody really wants a twice-indicted person as the next president. I don't think they want people who's cavalier with classified information or with state secrets. So I think there's still a lot of time to play out in the presidential primary process. We'll see if he even shows up on the debate stage. The first debate's going to be in August. So uh, right now, he does have the plurality of votes within the Republican primary, not a majority, 
and he is right now the most likely person to be the next Republican nominee. But I don't think that's any, by any means a lock and a guarantee that he will be that nominee. All right. Clearly, a lot of uh, legal proceedings to watch for and a lot of political developments to watch for in the coming weeks and months. Tevi Troy, I want to thank you so much for your insight tonight. Thanks for having me. And that's Primetime Politics for Tuesday. I'm Andrew Thompson, and for all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching and stay tuned. L'Essentiel avec Esther Bejan is up next. <laughs>